Welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, I'm going to say right off the top, one of the top five ones ever, Mike Watt of the band Minutemen of Firehose of the Stooges of Minute Flag of Society Ills of Ballhog or Tugboat of of Holes of uh, so much uh, reactionaries we we talk about it all on this episode well not all but we get to a lot of it but more on that in one second but first if you want to get in touch with me you can head over to the turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com email address and that is run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan. Love you, buddy. Thanks for all your hard work. Also, Tristan is uh, managing two social media accounts. One is a Facebook page, and one is also a, uh Instagram page, both found under the name at Turned Out of Punk. Or I don't think they do that on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Turned Out of Punk. And so send him a message. Say, hey, Tristan. Heard you had a new baby. Congratulations. Great to hear it. And and he will get the message to me. And then we can communicate that way. If you want to get in touch with me directly, though, you can find me on various forms of social media at left for damien If you'd like to support the show, the best way of supporting the show is by telling all your friends that you enjoy what we do here on the podcast. You can also rate it and subscribe to it on your podcast listening to platform of choice. But if you want to go a step beyond that, and I really appreciate the people that do, oh my gosh, do I ever, there is a Patreon slash turned out a punk page where you can, patreon.com, sorry, slash turned out a punk, where you can find all sorts of great stuff there. Uh, a bonus podcast, like Turn It a Punk Footnotes, hosted by myself and Chris O'Toole, where we dissect each episode of Turn It a Punk, merch, and and other things on there. Some some real weird bonus episodes that I, I don't talk about on here, but they're, they're found there. So head over there, and once again, thank you, thank you, thank you to all the people that have made that journey and supported the show that way. Uh, you can also uh, support the show by just uh, letting everyone know that you like this thing, like telling everyone out there that you're like, Hey, there's this podcast. It's, it's, it's got this guy. He's a little intense, but you know, you, you get used to it. You know, listen, listen, check it out sometime. Speaking of support though, this thing would not be possible without the kind loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a couple of years ago and said, don't lose any more money doing this thing. Uh, we want to help you do it. And they have, and I really appreciate them supporting me and, you know, letting me do this thing. And also, uh, House of Vans events have been put post have been postponed currently, but they will be back in the near future. Um, you know, when we rescheduled, sorry, in the near future. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna. So thank you, Vans, for all your kind support and all my friends are and happy birthday, Brooke. Brooke is uh, a real, real big supporter of this show uh, at Vans and and a friend of mine. And it's her birthday, so happy birthday, Brooke, and thank you for supporting this thing. Uh, and, and that's it. And I guess, uh, thank you. Thank you all for listening again, as always. Oof. Kind of an intense world right now, everything that's going on. And I want this place to feel, um, not like we're ignoring things that are going on in the world, but like I've always kind of said, this is meant to be a place for people that are otherwise informed, uh, to escape. So we're going to be hopefully, uh, you know, coming here as a place to just kind of decompress from all the the stuff that's going on around us right now. So I want everyone to stay safe. Obviously I want everyone to stay healthy and please stay calm and, and listen, 
you know, listen here if you if you need a break from things because I, I promise it'll be, you know, I'll, it's going to be what it is. Turn to punk will always be what it is. Uh, that's that's it. Let's get let's get on to today's show. Today on the show, got a massive guest. We got someone that that shaped my life in a major way. Uh, I think if you actually listen to the Turned Out of Punk episode with Jonah, I explicitly talk about this story of getting ball hog or tugboat and sorry, when Jonah interviewed me for the Turned Out of Punk episode and getting ball hog or tugboat and how much this changed my life. I got it on a school trip to Ottawa. I remember walking in the record store, seeing this like incredibly over the top packaging that this thing comes and you'll hear about it on the interview in a couple seconds where we talk about it. Uh, more like an hour and we talk about it, but anyway, we, I picked up this thing and I just remember looking at the cover and just seeing all these names, like uh, a, a venerable who's who of musicians. And I was just floored thinking, wow, whoever this Mike Watt is, he's got to be the coolest person in the world to be able to get all these people together to see his vision to fruition. And I can confirm all these years later that my God, he is the coolest person on earth. Uh, I, every time I see him, it fills me with joy. I've been lucky enough to share stages with him, not directly share stage with him, but open for bands he played in and, and play festivals with him and things like that over the years. And had a, had some opportunities to sit down and talk to him, but never like this, never, Never in this, never in my terror dome that I like to invite people into. And so getting him here and getting the opportunity to just kind of like really, really go at him for all these things I've wanted to know about for a long time was, oh, it's why we do this shit. It is why we do this podcast. So I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Um, I will have to give you a couple notes. There are a couple things that uh, need to be mentioned. Number one, Mike Watt is a guy who's in the red. And that is to say that he is a guy who, who, uh, his excitement bleeds through and not always can be contained by the limitations of the technology in a microphone. So sometimes might get a little hot, might get a little hot. Uh, but you know, it's what it's like when you talk to the man. So, you know, you're, you're in there with me. Uh, and also at one point, I'm talking about the band, the tater tots, but I'm pretty sure I meant to talk about twisted roots. Uh, so it works, it works for the conversation, but bear in mind, I think I meant to talk about twisted roots when we get to that part. But you know, like that being said, Pat Smear was in both bands, but it would make more sense if I had said twisted roots, but that's what theoretical part twos are for. All right. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Uh, there is a surprise in this episode too, about how I connect to ball hogger tugboat in a very personal way and direct way, but ah, you'll hear it. You'll hear it. I'm kind of overhyping it now, but, but yeah, I get stoked about it. You'll hear it in a second. Ah, oh, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. This is a long one. Uh, get comfortable, get ready, get set because this is, this is gold. Here is Mike Watt on turned out a punk. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me and Bard Dave. Well, as I was telling you off air, this is like top tier bucket list dream show for me because I don't think I'd be doing this without you. Oh, man. Well, we're all team. 
Well, I appreciate being on your team. And so before we get to me signing up to the team, which I'm sure I'm going to insert myself awkwardly into your story at some point today, but I got to start this off uh, where they all start off, which is, Mike, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we read about it in Cream Magazine. Me, D. Boone, Georgie, well, we graduated San Pedro High in 1976, so it's right around that time. And there was some stuff in the Cream Magazine, Richard Meltzer, uh, who, who was the editor there, the carburetor dumb guy. Lance Banks, yeah. Uh, Lester Banks. Lester Lance Banks. Banks. Lance Banks is a director. Sorry. It's actually a cousin. He's, yeah, he's married to uh, Corin, right? Yeah. And he's filmed, back where I just played Portland, he filmed my gig there. Lance Banks, great guy. So anyway, uh, we had heard about it and stuff, but not much, you know. And uh, the, the way we really found out about it was we were, now me and D. Boone had been, since I met him when we were 12, we uh, playing in his bedroom, copying Creedence and uh, T-Rex and Blue Oyster Cult. You know, that's how we did music, hung out. We would try to copy songs off records. Mm -hmm. We had a buddy, Mark Weiswasser, we were jamming with. trying. To, I think we were trying to do Tie Your Mother Down or some shit at this uh, rec room at the old fort that was closing down, and they were renting this shit out. And so we come out to take a breather, and this guy's walking by. He's uh, he got his hair out like spikes and he's wearing a Kotex around his neck and uh, <laughs> uh, a little older than us. We know him as Jeff Visovich, but he, he had changed his name to Nicky Beaton. He's the drummer in his band, the weirdos. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of the Hollywood band. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know this at first, you know, when we first saw him, but he, he looked like some of these pe people in the pictures. Anyway, he tells us there's this scene up in Hollywood where people write their own socks. <laughs> I mean, this is to show you how fucked up things were in the 70s, you know. We were like, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they write their own songs. And even if we didn't write it, they, they'd make it their own version. We were like, fuck, what's that like? It's because we had never been to a club. All the music we had been to is arena rock, you know. The first gig me and D. Boone saw was T-Rex, mm -hmm. which was pretty good. But it was still, he was very small and far away, you know. You know, you're in a big auditorium or sports thing or something, you know, arena rock was bullshit. <laughs> no, no rally type of, but we didn't know about clubs and that was a big part of the movement to us. In fact, that was a, as big a part as what we were talking about with the beats per minute and the haircuts, this idea of seeing music in a small pad. In fact, being able to see a band and know it. Uh, the lady is playing the bass because you can actually see their bigger strings mm -hmm. close enough. You can see Lorna. And then when they're done playing, here's the other trip too, Danny. They get done playing and standing next to you is Pat. You know, you can talk to Pat. You can talk <laughs> to the guy that was just playing. Yeah. In fact, the gig seemed like people were just taking turns playing for each <laughs> I mean, when we saw the bags was the first band we saw after you know Nikki tells us about the scene and the next week we go up it's a weekend at the whiskey and Sunday afternoon four bucks for four bands and if I remember right and uh, it's the bags they're wearing sacks over their head paper sacks you know and uh, and uh, without thinking just I looked over at D Boone and just out of my mouth comes uh, 
we can do this. Fuck. Because I got to tell you, the word was weird. And, and Pedro Punk is a guy who gets fucked for cigarettes in jail. Yeah, it was really strange. Like somebody would want to call, call their music this, you know? Yeah. Then when, watching the gig, we could tell that these guys just kind of learning and, but not afraid. And in fact, using music for a way we never realized till then, actually trying to use it for expression. I mean, sure, you could do it to hang out with your friend, but this idea that you could actually use it also to get shit that's off your chest, that maybe is kicking to get out. I mean, we never, we thought music was, if you did it yourself or with your friend, it was like building models or something. It wasn't like, trying to express yourself yeah that was a, that was a whole so that was the, the iconoclastic mind blow that took the sledgehammer to the berlin walls in our own fucking brains and we were instant uh, converts true believers and uh, it's never been the same for me since I've heard you talk in other interviews before, like you were a massive Blue Oyster cult fan, and obviously you're talking about how you and Boone, D. Boone went and saw uh, T-Rex and stuff like that. So, like, you're obviously gravitating towards kind of like, almost like the proto-punk kind of side of the rock stuff. I meet him in 1970, okay? We're 12, not even 13 yet. Yeah. Turn 13 later in 1970. Like, the whole 70s is our teen years. So... Yeah, we did find out there's actually people doing this kind of stuff, and they didn't have a name for it yet. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would think of, yeah, maybe the bands you're talking about, maybe uh, Stooges for sure. Yeah. Uh, Cat Beefheart, probably. Uh, some guys kind of copying Stooges, like maybe the early, early Alice Cooper. And uh, and I know Stooges played with Blue Oyster Cult. I've seen some posters. Yeah, I've definitely seen those years. posters, too. Yeah, there was a New Year's... Eve show in New York City, I, I know. So so maybe, you know, they didn't have a name. See, what we, we, we found out about the movement was it was actually trying to get back to the older rock, rock and roll, like even before T-Rex and Boystico, maybe even uh, Lil Richard mm-hmm. and Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, maybe going, because I got to tell you, in the 70s, man, it, it was kind of narcissist time. Like you didn't, when you're talking with your friends, you didn't talk about Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry or Little Richard. Uh, that was like your dad's music. You yeah. didn't talk about shit that was even five years old. It was all about what was happening right then. That's it. It was ridiculous uh, in a way. It was, uh, you know, it went with the fucking bell bottoms. We didn't wear bell bottoms either. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we didn't know there was a choice. You could have different musics, you know, you didn't know. In those days, things were more organized into old people and younger people. That's the way it was. There was a thing they called the establishment, and that was the older people. Mm-hmm. And that, I remember Bobby Dylan getting some award and calling everybody old. And, you know, what, he was like 28 or 29 or something. <laughs> I don't know, 25. And he's calling these guys that are over 30. Yeah, I think that was the divide mark was 30. Even though there was people... That were over 30 by then, but I guess you just didn't tell anybody. But that was like the big divider in those times. Now, when the movement came, it was like, no, you guys are playing boring music. See, people hadn't said that before. 
That was that was a big change. Like you had you've lost your way. You don't know what rock and roll is. You've turned it to some kind of a dinosaur shit, you know. And that that was the main argument at that time. But but actually, it was kind of social too. You know, I remember the I saw some of the people when start going to the gigs. My sister, before I saw that bag show, my sister Melinda, only a year and a half younger, but you know how when you're a teenager, girls are kind of hipper than you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Right, right. And, and, and in fact, with the movement, most of the movement in the old days was women. Mm-hmm. Almost all the bands, especially on bass head ladies and the, the gig goers a lot, a lot. I remember the scene was also very small, but... What I want to tell you is my sister brought me to this thing at the Tiffany that every weekend they would play this movie, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And these people knew the movie. They'd shout the words out, throw toast and squirt guns, all this kind of shit. And and that's kind of the vibe I got when I saw the gigs. Besides the sets only being like half hour, which was way different than arena show. It was more like the audience was more involved. They were part of the gig. Uh, so that 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 was kind of because here's another dynamic I should let you know about me and D Boone we're we're boys in the '60s right mm-hmm. we're born in I was, I'm in last week in 1957 but in, in April of '58 but so we're late '50s guys so we're growing up in the '60s as boys and so there's civil right and uh, free speech and uh, the anti-war. Uh, people, uh, younger people in the streets, you know, but by the time we get, you know, into the 70s, that's kind of over in, in a lot of ways. So and rock and roll, it turned into this arena rock thing, I guess, got hijacked by this industry. And. Uh, yeah, maybe we were looking. For what we thought was coming for us, but didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And maybe there were they, for one thing, for sure kind of lost the humor and and for sure the movement was a lot about the humor start with the name you know punk and the clothes and getting up there and you know being provocative and stuff you know that 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 stuff we thought we were going to be moving into uh was in that scene there and uh also this other idea of do it yourself now, these bands in England that got big really fast, they came over, we'd see them at the Whiskey, like the Jam and Stranglers, and they'd be good for the first album or something, but then just regular rock and roll, you know? Totally. They did have some scene that was like uh, what you would call do-it-yourself. Um, the Fall and uh, Alternative Television. And, and Swell Maps, like epic soundtracks, as we talked about earlier. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there was a buttload of them, but the uh, and maybe the other guys too started that way. But they uh, they got signed up really quick over there. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not blaming the the people in the bands as much as you know. It's just a coincidence of how uh, situations come about. And over here in the U.S. and Canada too, you know, uh, realized DOA very early. Absolutely, and, and torn down here in. in you know, uh, yeah, those cats. And oh, oh, moreover, on your side was, uh, fuck, what were those guys? The Nils? Yeah, m- Vile Tones before that, I Vile guess. Vile Tones. Nils was, they were Quebecois, I think. Yeah, but, Montreal. But still, the, 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 yeah, the Canadian cats, too, uh, 
and 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 you guys were kind of more like us, where you, uh, it was small scenes, so you had to do it yourself. They weren't really, I think, a big. You know what the what the over in U.S. they tried to do with the industry did new wave, <laughs> and I think Canada did that too, like Blue Rodeo and shit. Uh, and the, over here was with the cars. But in England, they actually had Jam and Clash and Strength, and they were on big labels, Sex Pistols. But uh, they also had that, because I think that's really important, and if you're looking backwards, because uh, that was the big separator, I think, between Hollywood and when we met the Black Flag guys. I think only the Dills had a van. You know, I don't know what the idea of a lot of the Hollywood punk, I mean, we owe everything to the Hollywood punk bands. But on the other hand, about getting in the boat and touring, they weren't much into that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no. But in the 70s, you know, it was, a, it was a different trip. But, yeah, we owe a lot to Greg Ginn about that, right? You know, and starting your own label and stuff. And, and when I, I've had people, like, like for Tony Dill, who we just lost a couple of years ago, but him saying, yeah, you guys – you know, it was funny. They thought anything south of Melrose was the beach. <laughs> you guys at the beach, man, you were you were industrious. You know, you guys went out and got vans and you toured and made labels. And I've had I've had a few people tell me that 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 were in that earlier scene. But mm -hmm. you know how it is. You need everybody because everybody's influenced. Like you were telling me about this thing in the middle of the '90s with Balog. You know, people uh, they bounce off each other, right? They inspire each other. So I don't want to dismiss uh, the Hollywood scene because I don't think we would have had, there wouldn't have been us without those guys. Everybody, in, same with England. I don't want to dismiss any of that, you know. I love that first jam record when they came and played. I got to, in fact, tell the singer that. I, I saw you once and you were playing the whiskey and it was incredible. And uh, D-Boom uh, tried to play guitar like you and, and stuff, you know. He knew about D Boone. The, the Gang of Four singer told me too he knew about D Boone. So I don't want to sound like I'm trying to dismiss anybody. No. But they were a little different, but they all kind of came together to make the whole in a way, you know? Uh, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's just everything you're saying, it's just like 100%, like just I've got so many questions coming off of it. Um, I guess first and foremost, like, was DOA coming down on tour? Was that the inspiration, do you think, for Black Flag? Yeah, they were, they were huge on us. They would play, there was a place called the Hong Kong Cafe, and they'd play there all the time. I'm talking about the one with Randy and uh, Biscuit. Yeah. That that version, the trio. I mean, they kept coming later with Wimpy and those guys, but really early on, they were uh, playing, and you know, this idea, these guys are Vancouver or Victoria, wherever, you know, true north, but on the west side, but they're playing down here. I mean... You know, we should be doing shit like that, you know? Uh, and and they, in fact, and there was another Canadian band. They didn't last as long, and Wimpy was in that band. They were called Subhumans, and they got to be friends with the Black Flag guys. In fact, I think Spot did one of their albums. Yeah. One guy had to go to jail for a nuclear protest or something. But the, 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 they, they, too, were kind of uh, this idea of you just don't play your own town forever. You go, you get in the boat, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, Greg, when he was younger, he did ham radio. We didn't meet these guys, you know, until the movement. They were handing out flyers when the clash finally came to play. But they're only about 15 miles away. But what I learned was that uh, as teenager, uh, Greg Ginn did ham radio. So he talked to people in different towns. 
So maybe he had this kind of a insight to like, yeah, you can play more than, but but the people actually doing it like on a vaudeville level was Joey and the, the DOA guys. I mean, they were actually doing this, and they planted the seeds, and they also gave people, you know, the the hints and what to do and. I know uh, with Chuck, you know, Chuck Trukowski was the big part of setting up the circuit. We still play Toron, you know? Yeah, still, absolutely. Still work these rooms because mm -hmm. of Chuck and his phone book. And part of that is, is Joey, too, you know, uh, and the DOA guys. We got we got to give credit. I got to talk with him once on a conference call with, uh, what's his name? He kind of sings like that singer in the jam. Uh, uh, American Band? No, no, he's from over there. Yeah, there are guys who do sing like English. <laughs> Definitely. Right, the Green Bay. There was one down in Orange County called the Weasels, the guys. No, no, this guy, Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg. Oh, yeah, Peter with the Rake, though. That's the Weasels band you're talking about? Yeah, Peter with the Rake, Maker Pay with the Mistake. They were Orange County guys. They, they, they just used accents from over there. <laughs> but uh, I, I got to talk all three because you were talking about uh, – I guess when Mag uh, Margaret Thatcher passed away, so they were talking about why why people don't put words in the songs the same as they do. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it's the same reason why you don't see as much bumper stickers. I think people put it in different places. They use shitter and instant ham and fake look, <laughs> and, and that that's why they still get out their stuff. They just use different ways. But anyway, th those guys. You know, the old days, Damien, was a lot about people. And I, same with the new days. <laughs> it's about people. So people like Joey and, and uh, Randy and, and Biscuit traveling like they did, playing not just other towns, not just other states, but even other lands. Mm -hmm. This was kind of a thing to get us back in touch with that vaudeville thing, which I think is really important, working the towns. It's something that won't ever go away, I think, uh, even with uh, other stuff getting more centralized. There's still a tradition of playing other people's towns. And the DOA guys and the Black Flag guys, they really made it part of our, uh, our movement. In fact, Dave Grohl was here a couple months ago just to uh, drive around with me in my Econo line, which is uh, put together in Canada. I think some of the parts come from the U.S. But <laughs> I'm glad we play a part in that. Yeah, your part. <laughs> okay, right. The call. My, my, the one I had before this had actually the 351 Windsor, huh? Oh. In Cleveland, the 351 oh. Windsor. Yeah, this this one I got now has a 6.8 league v, V10. But I know uh, a lot of the, it was assembled. In Livonia, I mean, there was a lot of uh, cross back and forth. But, but this idea... You know, I think is important, just as important as, as the beats per minute and the haircut, even maybe more important. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> because that, that, those, those lessons got forgot. I think yep. people thought, uh, you know, uh, it was all going to be about, you know, and in fact, bands were starting to send out little robots like Kraftwerk and Man or Astro Man even. <laughs> You know, and and then when that, all that dried up because of the uh, yeah not selling records, people had to work towns. It's been uh, kind of reinvented again, but th that was a big big part of it was the gig, the idea of the gig, and I think that's where arena rock kind of destroyed the idea of the gig because 
you were too far away. It was too big and lame sounding. And so, so you know, when we first saw experience, me and D. Boone had a talk. Let's divide the world into two categories. There's flyers and their gigs. And anything that ain't a gig is a flyer because it seemed like the gig was the most controlled. It was like having your own fanzine. Mm-hmm. You're going to be in charge of what's in that between the covers. You were in charge. You know, you had to deal with the guy at the door, but that was it. After that, you, you played whatever you wanted to, you know, and, uh, you know, so you had a world of nervous genders and no mercy and screamers and germs and stuff like this. And we saw th- thought that was the reason why it was just from the get go, the foundation you, uh, uh, anything that wasn't so, so when you made a record, when you did an interview, when you, uh, even later on the video, all these things that they're flyers, you're just finding telephone poles to put these things up so people can come to the gig and which was the holy thing playing music in front of people. We thought that was the, the, the main, main issue. That's why the movement had to come. That's why the rock and roll had to reinvent itself with, I guess, Ramones or or maybe it was Perubu, maybe it was television, I don't know. Maybe it was Stooges, maybe it was Captain Beefheart. Yeah, maybe it was Little Richard. You know, in your town, you got Massey Hall. Stooges got to play Massey Hall. There's a great record from you. I opened for you there. That's right. We well, talked about that a little bit. One of the best nights of my life. One of the greatest nights. Of my, the day after you had all your gear ripped off, too, not to bring up a horrible got memory. Got donated in, in uh, Montreal, right? Nothing against Montreal, but... No. Uh, and nothing against... If somebody's making music with that shit, more power to them. Yeah. yeah, it's still one of the most heartbreaking things was to kind of see your guys' faces the next day and then to see you, you know, play on all rented gear and still destroy the room like unlike any band i've ever seen in my life that show is just like that's my high watermark i just remember you shaking your bass well not even your bass amp the the bass amp that you were kind of dealt with and like playing on a borrowed bass even and just fucking you just killed it it was just such an awe-inspiring night that's that's interesting you say that because that's what uh ig said to ronnie because that ronnie was bumming big time man they took you know, like everything, right? Except one mic stand with the little legs. It would like modify as a, with the helper man, Josh would put littler legs so he could, you know, manhandle it better. Right? Yeah. So they left one of those. But, but it said to him, those are only material things. It's you, Ronnie. You're the one they didn't steal. You know, it, actually all of them, different points would always say stuff like that, that were like, whoa, it would like just make you think. Yeah. Stooges. You know, Ig a lot about culture, Ronnie with history, uh, Scotty with nature, and Brother Steve with uh, politics. But these guys, you know, they've, I was finally the little brother, finally the youngest guy in the band. <laughs> I, I was, it was really a trip, 125 months. And uh, they're really astute guys, man, really open-minded about a lot of stuff. It was what an interesting classroom to be in uh, Damien I mean incredible so when we played that gig uh, well you know Stooges gig 
they were all bonsai charges. <laughs> it seemed like they lasted two minutes. And, yeah. you know, it would say, we got to do it like it might be our last. So I, every fucking time, that's the way I worked it. He was the bow of the boat, you know? Yeah. I was the keel, I guess. And it was like, fuck it. Let's do this, man. It was incredible. I love every fucking gig I played with them guys. I mean, sometimes I'd clam and shit and regret it and stuff. But I would also take stock. I'd make di uh, diaries, and so I'd read about this shit. And next time, if you're going to clam, don't clam there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. So, so, so that those are the connects that I see, and why I, I think we were attracted to. It. Oh no, and I think like it's just it well it's it's amazing how it is like you know this this energy that kind of gets passed around and kind of like coalesces at a certain point that was like like you're saying it goes back right to the birth of rock and roll but like it was forgotten and had to be rediscovered like how much were like bands like um uh like like the Nerves and and those types of bands were they on your radar at all or were they just too underground no, at we that saw point? Them. you did we saw the Nerves. Yeah, you're talking about uh, Jack Lee, yeah, Ace, and yeah, hanging on the telephone, right? Yeah, absolutely. I got that record. It's a little song. I saw him at the Whiskey with the Last. With the Last, yeah, you know, the yeah, they were called the Last. In fact, the singer now lives in Pedro, Joe Nolte. Mm -hmm. It was a bop night, huh? Bop. Uh, Greg Shaw had a label. Mm -hmm. He's the guy who put out all those pebbles and nuggets, and. Uh, that's where I saw those guys, and they ended up all three doing their own bands. I think Peter did Plim Souls, and I don't know what happened to Jack Lee so much, but the the, the drummer man had his own version, uh, uh, own band called The Beat, I guess. It was his beat, and then the guy, there was an England beat. And, but yeah, yeah, you know, I was telling you about that new wave word because they were trying to use that because... Uh, make it more safe or something. So they was trying to say some bands were more new wave and some bands were less new. <laughs> to me, I thought new wave was a film movement in France in the early 60s. <laughs> right? 400 blows. Yeah, or yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny about words and semantics. And you know, in the, in the early 90s, they tried this, this bullshit one called... Uh, alternative right and I, t I told people watch out look now we got alt-right and bullshit like that. they said watch out for that word you don't want i mean what is the alternative to music silence I mean, <laughs> I, see, see these kind of things we paint ourselves into corners you know we yeah. shouldn't i think rock and roll was an old r&b word <laughs> for sex too right like originally right. Totally, totally. Yeah. Just like funk is, well, I guess for after sex. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Why not? Why not? And jazz, too. I mean, Jasmine was the, the flower to hide the smell, you know, in the whorehouses. All this stuff. So don't get so nailed down like this. But I think marketing people, you know, they want to try and make their job easier. So they try to use shortcuts like that. But everyone knows when it comes to the truth, there's no shortcuts. So all this shit about trying to label things the right way or make people like something before they even fucking hear it. <laughs> These end up being jive anyway, because they start jive, I think, Damien. Yeah. Uh, how, going back to that very first sort of bag show that you went to, that would have been super early into the bags kind of, that was before the seven inch, obviously, right? 
Yeah, I don't think they had a record. The first record was... Uh, Survive, right? Nature House. Yeah, there was a label here. Uh, Black Randy, his band was also had a label. And they were putting out Dills and Germs and X and everybody. Uh, the first Hollywood bands. There was another little label, too, called What Records. But those were the two main Hollywood things. Uh, they made a response to the No New York record called Yes, L.A. Mm -hmm. And the, fir the first song is a bag song. It's uh, We Don't Need the English. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're going to sing about them. <laughs> yeah, you do need them. <laughs> Tell us to dye our hair, you know. And uh, Al Actually, Alice has got a brand new record. It's a great record, too. Great lady. But you're right. They didn't have a record yet. And in fact, uh, Geza was in the band. Oh, really? Yeah, the first X didn't have Craig, um, not X, first Bags didn't have uh, Craig Lee. It had Geza, who went on to make a band called the Mommy Men, Geza. And he was also a producer. He did the first, Jell uh, not Jella, but Dead Kennedy album. Yeah, it did a lot of great records. Yeah, six pack. He was like a, a producer guy, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and also a musician. He played a really. He made had his own guitar. He made himself. It was really little, bigger than a ukulele, but not much bigger. It was like handmade. Man, I mean, all the bands. When you went to a punk gig in those days, you did not know what it was going to be like. It did, you know. They were all so strange, you yeah. know didn't know what it was going to be like. There was a lot of surprise. So when we saw that gig, yeah, we didn't know what to expect. And uh, we didn't know what to expect from even the other stuff, you know. So what we did know was people seemed very earnest. And nothing was going to stop them. Like somebody saying, hey, you're not good enough to be in a band. That was a big problem. Before that, you know, we, uh, mm -hmm. well, there was no club culture. So in Pedro, if you if you were in a band playing with your friends, you would play these things called keggers, which was like drinking beer in the backyard. And, uh, you know, the best guy was the guy who could play black dog the best, you know, and if he could do that, he could take your guitar in front of everybody and shame you. That's what was bitching about Georgie. Georgie was like, no, he's taking my fucking drumsticks. I worked hard for this shit. Charge <laughs> you had enough nerve to say no to people, but that's how it was, you know. And this other scene now, you know, SoCal's like 150 towns, so we don't we don't know each other. Yeah, people from the Valley, Orange County, the Beach, Inland Empire, nobody knows anybody, but you would see the same hundred faces every week. <laughs> you know, yeah, because people in those days it was very. Uh, what do I want to say? Uh, personable. Everybody was very, there was no, no one really knew how to do it right yet. There was no guy on the back of the circle jerk record to dress up. Carrie <laughs> <laughs> made that drawing, right? So many yeah. people, but also I got to say, people weren't as young either. A lot of the first, uh, the seventies punk was um, from glitter and glam. There wasn't really a lot of kids yet. That, that came more with hardcore. Now, look, we're only talking a couple of years, Damien. In those days, things changed really quick. Just a couple of years, and it's a whole nother thing. Yeah, absolutely. But by the 90s, like you were talking about, things started kind of plateauing out. The kind of, I'm not saying, you know, it's terrible or anything, but it's just different. The dynamic's different. You can't, you know what I mean? You can't go back. In a way, when things change, they're changed, and 
especially those early day 70s days, they changed things for fucking good. They never went back. The, the hatch never could get slammed shut again. So things kind of changed, you know, and especially, like I said, by the late 80s, early 90s, it kind of, uh, kind of is what it is now, right? The last 30 years, it isn't as much different as it was the period we're talking about, the late 70s. I, well, I, I remember this interview that you did years ago where you were talking about how this idea that when you guys were first doing it, when the movement's first really, really getting going and like everyone's touring, the idea that you would put out a record to promote a tour and then how in the 90s it became this idea that you were going to be uh, you know, touring to promote your record because CD sales were so big at that point. But now it feels like it's almost gone back. I think before of the, of the movement, it was about that too. Because yeah. like when we saw T-Rex and Blue Eyes, $2.50. And actually, there's no merchandise. Yeah. There's some bootleg guys a few blocks away. <laughs> yeah, it, touring had become an industry unto itself. It was all about promoting records. So with us, yeah, you're exactly right. It's flipped over on its end. You, 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 you put out records to promote gigs. Remember, like I said, our, our take on it, the gig was everything. Mm-hmm. Flyers and gigs. Everything that wasn't a gig was a flyer to get people to the gigs. It seemed the gig was so important and because that's what the movement was to us. It seemed like the people involved in it, that's what it was about to them. Even if they were, you know, well, well I got to say the fanzine was very important. That was the fabric. That's how you knew about what was happening in the other town, even in your own town, like somewhere <laughs> like SoCal would spread out. The fanzines were the fabric. Mm-hmm. Those that those were really important. Where there's no internet yet. I mean, Chuck's booking gigs over the telephone, but how we know about things is through the fanzines. And usually, though, that guy who's running the, the zine in their town, his his band's going to open up. He found the Italian, you know, Croatian hall, <laughs> Ukrainian <laughs> hall that you're going to play, and you're going to conk at his pad after the gig. <laughs> like I said, it was about people. I guess going, I'm also like obsessed with the idea of like, you know, talking about the seventies, like the year 1974, where you've got Watergate, you've got the real end of the Vietnam war happening. And then also like, you know, to bring it back to music, you have the Stooges kind of, you know, falling apart in the wake of uh, raw power showing up in California and doing that like stint where they're playing the two shows a day at the whiskey, a go-go. Like it really feels like that year is, is like the, the genesis of this thing kind of coming together for the movement at the start, at least. Yeah, well, see, we didn't know about that. We would have went up to Hollywood to see that shit because you know that that's the seventy four is the seventy three seventy four is the first year of high school for me, D Boom. Okay, and uh, the first record I heard by Stooges was Funhouse. That's it's already you know Rob Powers app just came out, but for some reason I heard Funhouse first, and like everybody at school hated it. <laughs> Everybody loved uh, in those days. The big bands were Black Sabbath and Santana, Led Zeppelin. I mean, uh, Jethro Tull was pretty big. They could play the Forum for four nights in a row. Yeah, people did not like Stu. Well, people didn't go to clubs. We didn't know about the whiskey. You know, we mm-hmm. there was this movie called Riot on Sunset Strip, but this is like this the '60s, right? Ah, even though it's only like five <laughs> years before. Ah, those are the old days. I remember, get this, I'll show you how corny shit was. This this movie, the Woodstock movie comes out, 
And it's, you know, a lot of those days, uh, midnight movies, like Jimmy plays Berkeley and shit, you know, Friday, Saturday night, you go to these movie theaters at midnight, they play these rock and roll movies. What well, The Woodstock's at one of these things, and uh, Na Na comes out, and people are like, booing! Like, this is my dad's music, fuck this shit. I mean, this stuff was only like, what, 10 years old? Yeah. 15 years old at the most, you yeah. know, the... But, but in those days, that's how it was. It was really uptight about that shit. 74, I mean, we, we just had gotten out of Vietnam, but in, in the, if the president's going to quit, right, Watergate, uh, it was a fucked up time. Uh, but the Arena Rock is making a lot of money. So that's the way the industry was, was pointed. And like, yeah, no room for stooges, man. No, no, no fucking way. Uh, and you know, being with those guys, they told me about touring, and it was it was terrible, yeah. terrible for those guys. Uh, uh, pe yeah, people did not like it. People did not <laughs> dig it. Uh, but what can you say about that kind of shit? You know, because a lot of stuff is peer pressure. It's it's hard to like something you don't know about. I bet I bet you a lot of people didn't even know about it, so they couldn't choose. Right? There wasn't that many bands, if you think about it. That people knew about the average Joe, unless you were a record co collector. What was the magazine? Goldmine. Yeah, yeah, Goldmine. Gold yeah, right. Your average dude wasn't reading Goldmine. They were reading like Circus. And, you know, not even Cream. Cream was kind of underground. You know, they're they're really that other one. You know, the the one with all the record company ads. <laughs> Were you were you guys hearing stories about like Rodney's English Disco and Zolar X and that stuff, or is it also like once again just too far He's away? Got a show. Rodney's actually got a radio show on Sundays. Oh yeah, were you listening to that by that point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's playing a lot of Bay City Rollers and <laughs> he's playing all kinds of shit. And he has a club uh, about that time called Rodney Hyper's uh, English Disco. Yeah, right, and that's. Uh, yeah, Ike had a weird gig where he had Ronnie beat his ass with a fucking whip. In fact, that was the last time Ronnie told me he talked to Ike until the reunion. They didn't talk for 29 years. So those those were kind of the, the, the salad days, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he ended up going to Berlin and shit with uh, David Bowie. and mm -hmm. uh, That was a whole other thing of his life. But, 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 but Ronnie did kind of bring some of that life to people who are listening on the radio. It's the same night as Dr. Domeno, you know, <laughs> Dr. Domeno had a radio show and he would play p punk stuff because it was kind of a humor thing. Like you were saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in a way, yeah, there was sometimes the humor was very dark. It was very black humor, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it wasn't, it was just totally outrageous, you know, weirdo Yankovic. <laughs> Another one rides a bus, right? How long after you went to that first bag show did you guys start the reactionaries? Yeah, right, right away, a couple mu uh, uh, months. You know, I, I, I had answered. Well, at first, D Boom wouldn't make a punk band with me. Okay. So we had this this free weekly thing called the Recycler, and I answered an ad, and I went up this pad up on Santa Monica Boulevard. This guy named Chris is drummer man, is using his uh, his pops electric. Uh, electrical shop is proc bad and i jammed i want to be your dog with the him and two, two other people this guy and girl guitar singer 
I want to be your dog for three and a half hours. We didn't even go to your park. Only the fucking first part. But I'd never played with you know strangers before. I'd never done something like this. Yeah. To adventure. I told D Boone about it when I got home. He said, "Okay, I'll make a band with you." So I never jammed with those guys again. But we made the reactionaries. He had a big list of names, and he picked that name off of it. And uh, he wouldn't write any songs for it. He didn't, didn't really like the band. And the first songs I ever wrote, they were pretty shitty. They're awesome. I don't know what you're talking about. That record, I honestly was just listening to it. Oh, you know about the record? Yeah, because the guy in Pedro had these Pedro people kind of redo. We made one cassette, right? Well, yeah. actually, two cassette. We made a copy of it. And we gave it to Brendan, the guy running the mask. Whoops. Sorry about no, that. No, no, don't worry. Mask. And, uh, yeah, I've been recording it. And, uh, I actually found it in his desk drawer when he was booking the club lingerie later. But I gave that cassette to Craig Abar, and he had these guys redo those 10 songs. And uh, I was so embarrassed about that. But. Really? I, I love that record. I honestly was... I got to start somewhere, right, Damien? I, well, and I think what a great way to start. Like, what a what a harbinger of things to come because I think that I think you're selling that record short, especially for, like, young people kind of figuring out the genre. Like, you've got some songs on that thing. I think we were 20 years old when we did that. And uh, anyway, I, I, yeah, the reaction is from 1978 to 79. So it was it was a couple months into, into the new year when we finally. But we wouldn't play in front of people. We just practiced and practiced. Finally, the Suburban Lawns, this band in Long Beach, was doing some gigs in their practice pad. We did some gigs there. And then the band breaks up. And we start the Minuteman in January of 80. So it's 40 years ago last month. And that's where D. Boone, he brings on all these songs. And uh, I guess, you know, this is the real band. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you got to start somewhere. So, yeah, the reactionaries and uh, uh, I guess I shouldn't be so embarrassed. I mean, what are you going to do, you know? Yeah, well, no, believe me, there's a lot worse <laughs> sins out there, that's for sure. We never did any, uh, oh, yeah. Actually, I wrote one song as a teenager. It was called Mr. Bass King of Outer Space. It was a, basically about, basically, I learned that in England. It was about, uh, at least I didn't see, say sorted or cheers, okay? <laughs> it was about the bass player doing a solo and everybody getting blown off the stage. <laughs> I obviously had some issues. I found out, you know, bass was where you put your, the lame dude. Punk was different. Punk, everybody was more equal, you know, with the movement. But uh, with the old uh, hierarchy of arena rock, yeah, drummers and bass players were really, they were the bottom of the pyramid for some reason. And, uh, and in fact, that's what D. Boone thought was really political about the Minutemen, was him playing more trebly and leaving room for the drums and bass. Of course, me and Georgie were into that. Uh, he thought the lyric part was about thinking out loud. He thought the real politics was in the way we organized the band. And uh, He got the idea from R&B bands uh, playing uh, a trebly and clip like that. Uh, but yeah, we had to start somewhere. So. Do you think it was part of the reason, like, he didn't want to put anything into the reactionaries is because he had this kind of, like, idea of doing something so... Let's think about the, the Minutemen. It's not just revolutionary music-wise, but, like, as you're saying, it's, like, revolutionary from, like, band inception up. 
Yeah, I mean, we still bounced ideas. I mean, the, the whole little song format came from Wire. And we're seeing gigs, you know, we're seeing the germs and the dills and X, nervous gender, mm-hmm. screamers. So a lot, of, you know, and then there's the bands that we never get to see, right? They never came over, but they're making these crazy records out of uh, uh, back east and in England and stuff. In, even Germany, right? Because the movement starts getting in other countries and stuff. So it's not just seeing the gigs, but it's actually listening to sounds. And I, I, I can't say that we're totally in a vacuum. We're all being influenced this stuff. Yeah, but we are trying to find somehow is, what is the minimum way to do it. You're right. You're right. And may, may, maybe you're right about D. Boone. I never had to talk to him about it. Hey, did you hate the reactionaries? I just got this <laughs> feeling that he didn't really dig it because yeah. he didn't write one song for it, you know, and he was – pretty ready to break up the band. In fact, he finds a guitar player for the last gig, which ends up, because I don't want to be in the band without him. So when he leaves, I just, you know, that's the end of the band. Yeah. I want to play with them. Even though the other guy was a nice guy and everything, and so is Georgie and Martin. I, 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 you know, he ain't in the band. I don't want to be in it. <laughs> so maybe you're right. You know, you know, we never talked about those things. Yeah. When I think about it, you know, the, the Minuteman is only one, Month short of six years, mm-hmm. right? We're we're uh, what do you what what, what do you what, sixty six uh, seventy one months? Mm-hmm. God, the band don't last that long, and I know them since we we're twelve, so I only know them fifteen years. Actually, fifteen but, very formative years, though. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be doing any of this yeah. without it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's incredible, but like I was saying, things happen very quick and very short in those days. Uh, you know, and so maybe you didn't have time to ask. Time to I remember us getting the first batch of tunes together upstairs in his apartment, and Joe Bison from Sacred Trust was living downstairs. We didn't know this guy. We saw him at gigs and shit. Now we don't have an amp on or anything, and there's no drummer yet because we don't want to upset the neighbors. So we're using our feet to keep time. You know, we're talking three, four hours, right? And so he thinks later on we finally get to meet him, you know. And he thought we were up the stairs dancing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, like that germ song, What We Do in Secret. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the whole thing was, and, and I got to tell you, Damien, we felt very tainted by listening and learning how to play to Blue Oyster. And when I met D. Boone, the only rock band he knew was Creed's Clearwater Revival. He didn't know any, he didn't know Blue Oyster called her T-Rex yet. You know, I had to turn them on to that stuff. I mean, we were boys and stuff. So so music was a way of us being together, you know? Mm-hmm. So now it changes. Well, that part don't change, but it, it gets expanded. Now we get to do be with each other in front of other people. So it's weird. Music gets another dimension to us. So maybe you're right. Uh, D. Boone, okay, it's a, the, I'm always thinking this is just something us to be together. And then, oh, there's this expression thing we can express together. D. Boone's more like, no, expressing is about doing it for other people. So maybe that's and why it had to be Minutemen and why it couldn't be Reactionaries. You know, both bands are named the same way. He had me put a bunch of fucking names on a piece of paper. In fact, Minutemen, the way I had it on the paper was actually two words because I didn't say minute. I was using it as a joke on uh, uh, arena rock band, huge band, 
and we're a little tiny band. We're a little minute band. We are the minute band. <laughs> yeah, we were tiny guys. And Deep Boot said, no, man, make it one word. Because these motherfuckers were uh, uh, using this patriotic kind of shit for some right-wing horse shit. Deep Boot said, hey, we can dilute their, any kind of power they're looking for. Appropriating patriotic symbols. I, I remember exactly the words he used. It's so funny. Appropriating patriotic symbols. That's awesome. Now, if we do that, if we use that word, we'll dilute it. They won't have any power. It fucking happened to us uh, well, later on with these assholes at the border here. Uh, people asking me uh, about Minuteman being some, yeah. So, but whatever, that's why he liked the name. Uh, the, the, the short song thing we got from this band Wire, right? This album, Pink Flag, mm -hmm. it had found effect on us. We couldn't believe that. Well, the idea of not just short songs, but you do whatever you fucking want. If you want a chorus, you put a chorus. If you don't want a chorus, if you don't want a solo, if you only want, you know, one, two X, you, that's, <laughs> then that's what you do. It's all up to you. For some reason, before that, we thought there were certain ways you had to do things. And the Wire guys or just all these people involved in the movement, you know, including personal relationships like with Raymond Pettibone, you you could do whatever you want. It took it took it took uh I know it sounds naive now to say that, but in those days that was a huge impediment to us. It's such a amazing band right of the gate. But like and obviously those demos came out for the first lineup later on, like that forced exposure seven inch. Yes, for the first two gigs we have Frank George Yank, the original Minutemen drum. He is from the Reactionaries, though. Mm -hmm. But he went and joined Hey Taxi, a new wave band after Reactionaries kaput. And then D. Boone, now I hadn't seen this guy yet, but I remember it's December 79. He says, look, next month, let's start a band. I know somebody who can do drums, but let's first get a batch of tunes together, and then we'll show them the stuff. And then a guy named Frank Tanchi, a welder guy, after two gigs, he thought punk was too weird of a scene. And he quit. <laughs> and now Greg liked us. Hey, you want to be SSTOO too? And Georgie, we were lucky that band Hey Taxi just broke up. So Georgie says he learned a bunch of songs in a couple days, and that's uh, paranoid uh, time. So Georgie f saves the day there. And uh, but we actually started the band without him. And so what you hear in the Georgeless EP was actually the practice tapes. Because uh, what we did was to get that first batch of songs together, we just pl pl came up with them together. You know, because me and D. Boone learning how to play growing up with each other, we never had to teach each other. We just play, and the other guy'd come out with a part, like like Osmosis. So we never had to make demos uh, with with Minutemen uh, that way. Wow. With D. Boone, yeah. Well, you know, and. It, yeah, what a blow when I lost him, you know. I lost yeah. him. Yeah. You know? The closest I ever got to that, again, was uh, kind of Nels Klein. Nels Klein's kind of like this, where he can pick up on what you're doing pretty quick. I, I, I uh, had him aboard for my first opera. And I, also he plays on four or five of those songs that you like, um, Ball Hug or Tugboat. Absolutely. So, but it's hard to find a guy like, right, because how do you share that experience? And growing up, you can't ever have it again, you know. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's like, you can't, you have to earn that kind of connection. Yeah, right, right. Or or just have a different way of, of, of making music with people. 
And I, which I did with uh, and from Ohio and of course Georgie. I got to play with Georgie fourteen years, and still with uh, unknown instructors. Proj, I still get to play with George. And there's there's certain kinds of shorthand you learn by being with somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. Tom Watson now with the Missing Men, right? Twenty years I've been with Tom Watson. So there's certain kinds of shorthands you learn. My second man guys, but especially when you're a boy with somebody. Oh yeah, no. It's, it's like growing up with someone, like discovering music with someone, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. We're going back to to George. Like you, you call you describe Hey Taxi as a new wave band. Like I've always thought that single kind of sounded punk. But were they like? Did they fit in with like kind of that more? As you're oh, saying, you've heard, you yeah. Hey Taxi had a seven inch. You've heard that. It was on Mystic. I on think, Mystic right? Records. I hate dogs on Mystic Records. A classic. I hate dogs. Doug Moody. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God damn, you're one of the first guys I ever talked to who knows about Georgie. Would love to. Yeah, but like I was saying, I I shouldn't say new wave because it's kind of a downer. If if you're coming from the movement, you look at it as because it was using that word was a voice from the industry. Mm-hmm. The guys in a band, if they said new wave, maybe they were just trying to get gigs. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you're always thinking of skinny ties right or yep. some shit yep. yeah no the knack but there's pictures of me. there's pictures of me and D Boom wearing some skinny ties <laughs> I see Mark Arm in this when Mark Arm sent me the Mr. Up in the calculator Mohawk man he was wearing a skinny tie I mean maybe everybody's got a skinny tie in their skeleton somewhere in their closet somewhere <laughs> but uh yeah, yeah, it was it was mainly the guitar man, the singers, Spider, and uh, I can't remember. We didn't really know him that well, but G- Georgie told us about him all the time. They're really nice guys, and he loved playing with them. But the band just kind of sputtered out. It was our good luck because Georgie was there, and we we could be SSTOO too. But yeah, I hate dogs, and I think the other side's Queen Bee or something. I can't remember what the yeah. I think it's Queen Bee. You're right on the flip. B, B in the word. Yeah. Like like the insect, abeja, abeja, uh, ape, I think I tell you. But uh, so Georgie actually records before us. You know, Georgie's a recording artist before us. <laughs> he's he's the veterano. <laughs> yeah. So he, he God he came to the rescue so many fucking times. But you're right. I I, I didn't mean to say that like as a put down. I, ju- I just uh, meant to say that Georgie got. You know, he loved playing so much. When he, he he saw the opportunity, when we actually went around way, he went uh, and joined Hey Taxi. Trippy name for a band, huh? Especially in, in SoCal, where taxis ain't that big. Yeah, <laughs> Park City. <laughs> well, and, and it's like it's like one of the first, I think, Mystic Punk records because they put out that well, Stickball yeah. Seven Inch and some other because stuff. What happened? Doug Moody went went on, especially with the Nardcore scene, right? I think yeah. he recorded almost all those guys, all of it, Don yeah. No, and Stalag Thirteen, and. Uh, there's not some pretty history. I think everybody got ripped off or some shit. That's what the story is. I hear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no but, one... but there are, at least there's the documents. As, as if you're into like listening to the music and Rodney uh, Bingenheimer would play a lot of those records. I've always been like there wasn't a lot of records, right? Mm-hmm. There was a Danger House people, like you said. There was a guy in Orange County named Robbie. Well, everybody called him Posh Boy. Yeah, Posh Boy Records. And there was a label called Posh. Like the first Red uh, Red Cross, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Rick and people like this. And- RF7, I believe, too. Oh, they were on yeah, Smoke 7, right, too. Right. L7, uh, Shattered Faith. Yeah. Uh, maybe even Agent Orange, right? Uh, Mike Palm. And- I think so, yeah, absolutely. So, so 
as, as far as the document thing, that's really good about those cats. As far as career moves, maybe he wasn't. Yeah. But what could you do in them days? The yeah. best thing to do was do what Gin did was start your old label. Yeah, no, definitely. And and I guess like was and New Alliance was your guys' label, right? But yeah, but that's totally uh, influenced by uh, SST, right? Yeah, yeah, we put out the first Who's Do and Descendants because we found out being part of the movement wasn't just making a band and making songs, but it's also making records and making gigs and making fanzines and you know what I mean putting them on, not just being the 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 passenger but like grab it onto the steering wheel right it's not just riding in the back of the boat but actually have put your foot on the accelerator and the brake and the steering wheel and all that shit well and obviously you get the credit you know for being the one of the greatest bass players of all time and like one of the you know like an ultimate top 10 musician musicians but like at the same time like new alliance you guys put out some of the most important rock you know, records to come out of the movement, like, you know, like from Husker Du to Descendants to Screaming Trees, like the A&R vision of that stuff is, is, is incredible. Like these are records that still kind of get heralded and, you know, New Alliance doesn't really get the credit. Well, by that time, Screaming Trees, New Alliance, I had sold it to Greg again because I had no time without D Boone to do it. Yeah. So, but the other two, Descendants, Huskers, again, that's friends. It's yeah. people. Mm-hmm. In fact, Husker gave the cassette to Flag, and they just didn't have the resource. And Greg, I remember him giving me the cassette. Hey, maybe you want to put this out because we had just come out with Cracks in the Sidewalk, right? Mm-hmm. Started off, first co- uh, releases were co- compilations. And so me and D. Boom, we think it's speeded up Blue Oyster Cult. We're really into it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking, you know, eight, nine hours at a time with Greg, Bob, and Grant. And, it's, it was about people and friends. Uh, so I don't know about so much A&R vision, but we did like the music a lot. We thought if we got records coming out, they should too. Yeah. And that's why we did that. Uh, you know, um, it was when you found out about like, yeah, records come out if you pay a pressing guy. We didn't know about that shit, you know, mm-hmm. when you're little and you think oh, it's Mount Olympus and people come on from you know, to deliver the good time. You don't understand the mechanics and all that. That's what, what, why the do-it-yourself was not just a slogan. It was a, just like the anarchy thing, not a slogan. We, uh, we try to put these things in real life. Let the freak flag fly. And, when, you know, we find out Walt Whitman put out his own book in 1855. <laughs> he writes 12 poems. He thinks he's going to stop the fucking Civil War with this shit. Yeah. You know, just idealistic, altruistic, whatever. Same kind of values, I think. uh, I don't know, 80 years later or uh, 120 years later, I should say. 1855, yeah. 120 years later, we're picking up on the same trip. In between, there was, uh, what, Woody Guthrie and uh, Dada and Surrealist and futurist and all these kind of movements of people taking things into their own hands. So, you know what I mean? In a way, we were kind of part of a weird tradition. Somebody once, there was a uh, band up in the city called Black Humor, and they had this song where one of the lines was, uh, the only thing new is you finding out about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> because a lot of the shit was like that. Yeah. You know, and it was important to find out for ourselves. You know, because a lot of the education, you know, nothing wrong with uh, learning how to read and write and all this, but you got to admit a lot of stuff is about regurgitating stuff and not really taking it into your own hands. Which, uh, you know what I mean? Just get patted on the top of the head for repeating something. Whereas pr probably really learning something is, you know, finding out how to wield it so you can involve it in your expression. Uh, so I'm, I'm, maybe if we could get a little more perspective on education that way, because that was really the education. And that's why I called 125 Months with the Stooges a classroom. Because I really do think life is interesting when it is kind of like a classroom, but not maybe the nightmare everybody had to go through, but more like this one where you're educated, but the education is kind of a two-way street where you're participating in this kind of expression. At the same time, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's more dynamic. It's more bo both ways. Yeah, like a chosen school almost as opposed to. Yeah, yeah. In, or the school of life, you hear. The school of hard knocks. The school of. Notice they keep saying school. Mm -hmm. in the school of fish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's something about it. There's something about it. You know, everybody thinks freedom, liberty. Ah, no more tests. I don't have to go to school anymore. I mean, my whole idea of my third opera was, no, man, life is for learning. The problem is you getting bummed out because the way we learn, it ain't the idea of learning. All this shit we've been talking about, right? Uh, you're asking me about how did you find out about this? What? How did you find out about that? How did you get to know this? To me, it sounds like it's all kind of school. The school of the movement, the school of gigs, the school of bass, the school of friendship. The school of making bands. Well, that's so what I, that's I what I look. Think we're that far away. Yeah, no, that's why I do this podcast because I want to yeah, learn. I want to sit here and have my my conversation with you and just learn from, like you're saying, like this is all like this is philosophy. This is music philosophy from like one of the original philosophers for this movement. Okay, okay, and uh, so so. Uh, Obviously, to learn, you have to be a little bit, bit open-minded. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it means kind of admitting the stuff you don't know. And, man, we're taught on a value system thing that you're kind of a loser if you don't know everything. Mm -hmm. You know, humility's yeah. out, right? Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to admit to this shit, even if you don't, because you got to put up this game. Well... I'm not saying uh, music is totally about honesty. Uh, John Fogarty was born on a very northwest bayou. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes art is for transcendent and convenient truths. Like you're born into a situation where you ain't got the money, but maybe you can still make a band. That's the whole idea of We Jeremy Cano. It's not just a slogan. It's a philosophy. It's a way of life. So you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Greg, you know, let's go tour. Let's get in a boat. Well, how do you do that? I don't know. If it's like skateboard, we probably will have to get up if we fall down. It, but to me, that's part of learning. 100%. Definitely. And you have a show here and talking to people 
who by coincidence was here a micro sliver of time before you. So I've got this incredible privilege over you because of that. <laughs> You're most kind to hear me out. No, on I, the other hand, I'm I'm very grateful for a listener like yourself, some dude who is curious about this, who does suffer from the disease of curiosity. <laughs> you understand? It's 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 this two way. It's this dynamic. I've also. It was like like seeing the gig, right? Seeing the germs, and then Pat's right next to you. You can talk to him. Uh, you know what I mean? Yep. That to me is kind of a classroom sitch. Oh, absolutely. We were we were on tour of the Foo Fighters, and I punished Pat Smear every day to learn from him. I I, I begged him for a germs burn uh, every day. Every day we I, I would ask him for just stories and just try and try because it's an oral history, right? Like a lot of the stuff is written down, but. Not in the same way that it's passed on through storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. Because why? There's art, right? See, that's the idea. You know, that's why that Northwest Bayou ain't so bad. Okay, you know, I can imagine the, the, the first cave painting, and the guy says to his buddy, what do you see? And what's the guy say? Chromium zinc? You know, no, man, it's a buffalo. You know, it's a horse. You know, what is keeping it real? What is reality? You know, no, no, there's artifice. There's, you know, putting on a play, putting on a show, writing a song. There, there's, you know what I mean? There's artwork. So you're right. And it's not just the facts. Even if it is the facts, it's how those facts are presented to you. How the way you interpreted them, you know, how you're going to use it in your spiel, in your endeavor. That's, that's where the... Right, I remember somebody's talking about the artwork in the in, the, in a pen knife. The the, the the pen knife has got the art, but it ain't been curved yet. It's the potential, right? It's <laughs> it's not actually in the knife. It's what's going to get carved with the knife. You know, it's, yeah, potential it's kind versus of that kinetic. Kind of so what we're trying to do is set up situations that are fertile, that don't promote. The same old, same old, the I Love Lucy rerun, you know, the fucking cliche sleepwalk, connect the dot, you know, paint by number shit, right? We're, we're, who was that? Where no man has gone before, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, or at least, uh, you know, have that kind of excitement, even if it is your, your, you know, variation of Tutti Fruity. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, you look at the fucking reality. Pat Boone sold so many more Tutti Fruities than Little Richard. You know, they asked Little Richard about that once. He said, well, that's all right. You know, uh, uh, his version was for the living room. My version was for the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of stuff is, it's kind of trippy about it. But, yeah, like me with the Stooges guys. How much stuff is fourth, fifth, sixth hand? And here I could go right to the well. I can understand you. I think you you were, you said punish Pat. Oh yeah, punish him. I would punish. I remember Riley telling me, you know, I feel like the old black guy on the porch, you know, with the blues guitar, and you coming up and wanting to hear how to do a lick. <laughs> Show me. And in a way, that's the way it is. It is, and people are have to go to the well, you know, because. Actually, it's opportunity. 
they don't have to go through all them layers. Yep. They can go right there. There's the guy who actually played TVI. He's playing it right in fucking front of me. That's where you put fingers. (laughs) 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 You know? Oh, it's only one chord. Yeah, but that's the chord. He's doing it. He's doing it for you right in front of you. You're two feet away. You're watching it. It ain't just a sound anymore. That was such a trip. That was It was forever changed because it was always in my mind before that. And then when Ronnie played it for me right in front of me, and then when I'm on stage playing it with him, but still there was something about it, you know, all those worlds that it occupied. That's the interesting thing about art, you know? It just really is righteous that way. You know, like one thing I've always wanted to know on on like kind of just like a historical fact kind of level, like going back to like we talked about that mystic record scene, was the SST world and the New Alliance world, like obviously different worlds, but like kind of was that one kind of camp and was the stuff that was happening with those other bands like another world or how much connection was there in those scenes at that point, like kind of as the 80s kind of dawn? Yeah, because the way Greg won SST, especially in the old days, the first days, he kept it small. Mm-hmm. These bands are the bands that toured together. They kind of, you know what I mean? Whereas Mystic was Doug Moody, I think, is up in Hollywood, and any young band that came around, he asked him. Okay. Greg wasn't that so much. Because, you know, I think Greg had a bad experience. He was going to, they were called Panic before Black Flag, and they were going to make a bop single, and it, didn't, it fell through. So it was like, don't rely on other people. Let's keep it all in-house. And I think that's why. So SST, that that was way more just us. And then it, it even happened when he was torn. They would bring their own opening acts because there'd be all this kind of political bullage depending on which town you were in because of the scene with the local bands, right? So mm-hmm. he thought, just bring your own bands. <laughs> well, that created its own trouble. Like, why are you bringing your own bands? Why can't we play them? You know? There's always going to be problem with humans, but I think that's why Greg kind of separated it. And even though he really liked those bands, especially love Germs and those guys, he he never he ended up putting out though later on SST started doing things and there's there's it's called Pat Ruth and Smear. There's a Pat Smear solo. Oh album. yeah, no, I know that Pat Smear record absolutely. And it's, made with, it's made with Paul Ross. It's great. Pat, yeah. Pat plays everything. Well, Paul does some keyboards and stuff. And there's a song he wrote with Darby on there called Golden Boys that was going to be a germ song. Well, they also did that Tater Tots record together too, right? A few years earlier, I think. Uh, Tater Tots ain't the same as like Pat Ruth, because, you know, his real name is George Ruthenberg, right? Mm -hmm. So he kind of used his own own name kind of in there. Yeah, Pat, incredible musician. He's got all these notes and stuff stuck to his face on the album cover. I think it was in the late 80s. Yeah, no, it's a great record because he was working at the SST uh, store. T- that might be even after. Or, or, or that when well, he's actually working there, by that time, he's a counter guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you believe that? Yeah, he's a, cu- a couple blocks from the Whiskey on Sunset Boulevard working the counter at the SST Superstore. Oh, that's so awesome. You know, like a legend, a legend at the counter. Yeah, yeah, at the counter. You know, that's that's life. Then he was asked to join the Chili Peppers, but he held, he was in the adolescence for a little bit. Yeah. Then uh, he ends up in uh, Nirvana. 
I remember him telling me he turned down the Chili Peppers because they played funk and he didn't want to play funk music. But he is in that video, uh, Raspberry Beret. Yeah. <laughs> he's got long breads. He's sitting down with all them people. Oh. And he's actually in, he's in uh, a Prince video. He's not playing, but he's sitting. Oh, Pat's been through all the trips, you know, but... I remember when I first met him, when I talked to him and I got the nerve up because I thought he was so original. I said, I don't know, this might sound crazy, but have you ever listened to anybody play guitar? He goes, oh, I love Queen. I was like, <laughs> it made total sense, but at the time I was like, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you, you know about his Toronto connection, punk rock wise, right? No. That his wife's dad was the lead singer of the Toronto first wave punk band, The Battered Wives. Better wives, okay. So it all—I well, didn't know. It's all connected through punk. Yeah, I knew Jenna. You know, this lady was with a long, long time from the old days, but I didn't know that. The, is it a trippy about connections like that? Oh, I love it. That's my—I I live it. I live for that. Yeah, yeah. Because the scene was so small, so when you see connections like that, it is trippy how they happen. But they do. Oh, absolutely. It's about people, like I was telling you about. Old days was about people. New days is about people. A big difference is internet. That That is a big difference. Yeah, because you can connect easier. And also, the music stuff doesn't cost as much. It's easier to record. Yeah, definitely. And you guys were kind of the first internet, really. Like, like you think about, like, you're talking about, like, how trapped people were locally prior to this and like punk rock is where people are writing letters to each other. They're communicating through fanzines. Like yeah. it really opened up the world yeah. in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. It was, like I said, it was a minority movement. So you had to find like-minded people amongst the haystacks, right? You're <laughs> looking for needles and haystacks. Yeah. Is the, the, the person connection was really, the telephone was really important. Something that's hardly used nowadays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hardly use the phone at all. <laughs> hardly at all. But in those days, it was huge, hugely important. And then just with your buds, even if they lived across town, 10-hour call with Greg Ginn, 10-hour call with Joe Biza, just for the nighttime, yeah. <laughs> Shit you never do nowadays. <laughs> uh, um, Mike, I could, I, I could talk to you forever. And, uh, I, I really do appreciate you coming on and giving me this time, but before I let you go, no, I have no. to ask you about the, the textbook for me that yeah. got me into this whole journey, which is that record that, you know, it's 25 years, uh, coming up this couple of next few years, I guess, at this point, uh, which is ball hog. Uh, and it's, you know, the, one of those records that just, Oh, in March, I think in March next month, next month, it's 25 years next month. That's fucking wild to think about. I know uh, when, I, when I tell you, I knew D Boone 15 years. I mean, it's really hard. Yeah. Put that in perspective, but I just think ch time changed too. the, the way you perceive it, but yeah, 25 fucking it's dr over drinking age. <laughs> <laughs> Strange record for me. Damien, it's called a solo record. There's 48 people on it. <laughs> but it's where I got, it kind of was, for me, like it was big in your life. But looking back, I, mean, I was talking with Dave a couple of months when he was here in Pedro driving around town with me, the boat. It was a sea change for me. 
mm-hmm. because I didn't really have the nerve. Fire Hose was basically Minutemen with Edward, you know. I didn't know how to make another kind of way of doing bands. So doing that record, playing with different people so much, that got me the nerve up to do kind of what I'm doing now, which is where I, I put a proj around a band around each proj. So I, I'm involved in all kinds of things. Where in those days, not so much before those days. I did everything through the trio because that's how I knew it, right? D boom. Yeah. I never thought about ball hugger tugboat. It just kept once I made that record, I just kept going and made the first opera, made the second opera, third opera, helped the Stooges, you know. But looking back, that record was a sea change for me. I just think it was also just must have been such a massive undertaking. Like I think being in a band and trying to organize guests for a record and things like that, like it's just it's like herding cats. And like you're saying, like you you put together seventeen songs on there, right? Yeah. So there's seven there's seventeen bands. Seventeen bands. It's like a compilation. This is where my Minuteman training came in. Mm-hmm. You know, I know the song Ball Auger Tugboat. The whole idea was a test. I thought if the bass player knew the song. Anybody could come and sing and play drums or guitar. Okay. And again, going back to that inferiority complex about, <laughs> you know, basses where you playing that. I thought, no, bass could be actually the composer tool. And look, I did it with D Boone. Maybe I could do it with these other guys. I didn't use any managers or shit like this. I just called guys up. Hey, I'm going to be at the studio. You want to be down there? I got a tune that you can be on. I'll show it to you. Uh, and then, you know, I use the metaphors of, of the wrestling ring. Yeah. Get in the ring. Let's wrestle. Yeah. And that's the way I did it. I used what I knew from Minuteman without being the Minuteman. See, that was the problem for Edward. Edward had to fucking step into Steve Boone's shoes. That was so, man, I, Edward had balls like church bells. That guy helped me out so much. But that was so lame for him. So just be yourself. Bass player's got a song for you here. We're going to make 17 little bands. Let's see what that kind of, let's see if the bass player can make a record with different people. And that's what came out. You mentioned pro wrestling. Heard cat. I, I had 17 different litter boxes. <laughs> you, you mentioned pro wrestling and like being an influence. And obviously I'm a massive, massive pro wrestling fan. And yeah, I, Petty, uh, before the Vince McMahon Jr. days so. though. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. The territory days. Yeah. My favorite was Don Morocco, uh, Terry Funk. Those were my two favorites. Oh, that's well, the, the Terry Funk is like, and also it's funny because you talk about sort of the movement in that exists in music. And I think if you're going to look for a parallel in pro wrestling, it really starts with Terry Funk and the idea of this guy who's like a true independent that oh. stays that way the whole way through. But came from a family, right? He's a. a Funk Brothers. Yeah, and their their dad too, right? Yeah, like yeah, inventor of the Deathmatch. Family, yeah, like the Von Erichs and like Dusty Rhodes, right? Dustin and there was a lot of that. Actually, there's a lot of Canadian connection with wrestling. Oh, definitely, definitely. A lot of those cats came out of there. We uh, and Raymond knows all that shit. You know that that that's what was bitching about it. Like just like with uh, the horse track or. High school basketball. <laughs> Raymond's <laughs> mind is deep, man. He knows all the trainers, all the coaches, all the jersey numbers, the whole shit. All the beefs, all the heels, all the pretty boys, uh, pretty faces. Were there any people that couldn't be on the record because of like contractual kind of bullshit that c- they got caught up in? Or was it like you got everyone you wanted? 
Well, you know, a lot of it was circumstance if they had time. Yeah. Yeah, nobody, because I didn't really deal with people, uh, with managers and shit, so I didn't have that contract stuff. That's awesome. I just deal with people. Uh, what was that record that Us and Flag did? It's called Minute Flag. Minute Flag, yeah. Yeah, Greg, they're, they're, they're in between recording uh, In My Head and Loose Nut. Hey, you guys, come in. Let's jam some songs. We got the time in the studio booked anyway. And then we did it. Greg says, okay, it's not going to come out till somebody gets killed. <laughs> wow. I know. And we all laughed. And fucking it happened like in a few months. That's <laughs> so yeah, bizarre really. about that. Yeah. That's, so that's that was that was the kind of template I used. Greg's, you know, the way Greg was, what we learned from the uh, Black Flag guys, hey, you want to go on tour? You want to be SSOO2? SSTOO2? You want to go to Europe? They were like this. These guys were so open-hearted and generous that I used the same fucking things. Mm-hmm. And from Ohio, I didn't know you had to pay to have your f- number not in the phone book. So he just comes up to my house. You know, this guy's in REM and U2 and shit. I, I thought, fuck, if you got balls enough to drive over here, okay, I'll try a man with you. I think it's kind of like the hippie thing before Charlie Manson. You know, if you had enough nerve to have long hair, maybe they could trust you. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I just use those kind, same kind of things. It seemed to work for those days. Hey, you want to go try to make this record? Make these songs? And I just asked dudes. In fact, I've been thinking of making another wrestling record, except this time, and I thought about this soon after making this. I'll just pick a town. So I was thinking, you know, rock and roll Cleveland, right? Yeah. Why not try Cleveland and whoever's home, I just make a record with. I'll just bring songs in my base. And so I've been planning on this. I'm going to do it in the next couple of years. Oh, that's so amazing. Because I think there's there's something about the ball hugger tugboat idea. It kind of goes back to maybe to, to the bebop guys, the jam session, right? Let's just do it. Mm-hmm. You know, do it, do it. Well, like it also like begs the question because you know, like the Motown stuff, there's like all those uh, versions of those songs done by different Motown artists. I've always kind of wondered, yeah. like, what if you did a different configuration on Piss Bottle Man or or against the 70s, like, you know, or Tough Gnarl? Like, what would have been different if you had switched out one of those people? Because it's just like all those players make that song so unique to that version. Absolutely. So I think it would change the tune. Oh, definitely. I could, yeah. Change the tune. Even Tough Gnarl is not like the Sonic Youth one. No, I'm going to say that's the only, one of the rare times in history that a cover exceeds the original. And I'm a Sonic Youth, and that's my favorite Sonic Youth record. I'm a, I, I'm a I Sonic Youth Brian, fan. I, I think, isn't Thurston playing on it? He plays on it too, yeah. And it's um, no. the singer of Jardine Phillip Fibber's on it too. and Carla Bozilich, Pedro Lady. Oh, such but a great song. They re- reinterpreted that song in such a way. I mean, that was, that was, that was the idea of Ball Hog too. Okay, that one, we're actually covering a song that the guy's in. I think that's the only time that happens, right? Yeah, yeah. I think on the record, definitely. Yeah, all the other ones, people are playing stuff I I gave them. And even if it's a a cover, they never even heard of it before. (laughs) (laughs) So you're teaching them about it, too, at times. Yeah, I'm teaching them about it. Yeah, yeah. But, and I always just thought there was some kind of connection between Jay Mascus and Eddie Hazel. I just always heard Jay trying to do that song. Mm-hmm. Maggot Brain. And mm-hmm. then it was in the studio. Bernie Worrell. What a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. So I, 
I think if the Cleveland one, I would use different songs. So it wouldn't, because if I use the same songs, it would beg to be compared. And it's going to get compared anyway. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, uh, it's, and it's such a perfect, you know, set. And that's the thing about it. Like you go back on, look at it now. It's like, what an amazing document of the time and of that period in music. Like, you know, it's obviously just after Kurt um, dies, but it's kind of like the, the summation of an era. Also putting into real life or putting into practice the, the, the dog philosophy, you know, why does a dog lick his balls philosophy? <laughs> What's he, can. Cause he can. That's a big tenet of the movement. Yeah. So maybe for the era, but maybe for the whole dealio, man, just have you ever heard this crash song where the guy Steve Ignorant is just saying, "Do it, just fucking do it." Yeah. I think he's playing the radio in the background, but it's not. It's kind of a tune, but <laughs> basically, it's kind of a philosophy lecture, like you know, where he's just saying, "Fucking do it." I think the guy's a volunteer fireman now. I think I heard that too, actually. Yeah, I, I remember this this song, a f- second or third record, where he's just talking about just fucking do it you know and and there's something about it and th- that's what it was about what was i gonna do you know I, no 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 d boone and now no edward it was scary you know but fuck what's a bass player what is a bass player he's glue and what is yeah glue without anything to stick to it just a fucking puddle i didn't want to be a puddle no, that and that record, like you're right, like it is so bass driven. Like every song is because it's you writing it, so it's it's like your your ultimate kind of comeback to what you did as a teenager. But now you've kind of done right, and the bass player has blown everyone off the stage. Yeah, every everyone has uh, done the D Boone role without putting a fucking pillow under their shirt or dressing up like him or some yeah. shit. They're yeah. just being themselves, but they're actually they're my D Boone. Without being a fake D Boone, they were themselves, Spotsky, Petra, Carla, Ed, Dave. Yeah, it was kind of a trip, you know, because it wouldn't have been right to, for D Boone. It wouldn't have been right for the Minutemen to go and put on a fake band like that. But by making it like that, we could use the same ethic and, and still be genuine about it. It's also like a Warhol thing where you're also like the art is not just these songs you're writing. The art is the, the whole package. The, the, I was actually talking about with my brother last night, like the CD packaging alone is, is something so unique. Like everything about it. It's like the, the medium is the message as well as the music within it. Yeah. Another Canadian guy, Mr. McClellan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was trippy because when I brought it to the label, Columbia, you know, and the art guy, you know, it was like I gave him the geo, you know, the go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Perry sings in that song, guys, you right, the geo, I got the no go. I gave him the geo, but it was just like I gave Ed the geo, I gave Petra the geo. Mm-hmm. I got the geo, right? When Columbia signs me, I don't have, I can make all I, uh, the only stipulation in the contract was it had to be technical, right? I didn't have to submit demos. I don't hear any hits there, you know. Those people were very open with me that way. They gave me the geo. I mean, I think that's the whole one of the crux of the whole movement is the geo. So when you give the art guy, 
he sees like what he sees putting whoever he doesn't even know what the fucking song sounds like till the guys go and record it with him. Box is bigger than the usual box. It was kind of a little book thing. It's uh, kind of contagious. Yeah. <laughs> the bass player gets to do this. Maybe the art guy gets to do this. Maybe everybody, you know, the whole idea, just let the freak flag fly, you know. I, I never thought about that. You might, you know, Damien, you might be right about that. I guess I got to also talk to you about our mutual friend, Rhonda, who... Uh, I know as uh, an amazing teacher, like one of the best teachers my children have ever had, but you know as a, another player featured on this record. And she's also one of the only people on this record that doesn't come from, you know, the movement. You know, like I've talked to her about it and she's like, no, I definitely came from a more improv, improv kind of background. How did she wind up on the record and like, how did you pick the players, I guess? That's the way I saw that music. There was something going on at the same time, the L.A. Free Music Society, the Smegma people. I was listening to Tesseract, an imaginary landscape on KPFK, you know, imaginary landscape named after John Cage's song. Mm -hmm. Carl Stone was the host. I, I, I always thought experimental music was part of the movement. I, I really did. I just always thought it was. Uh, I know now I would tell you this, too. I'm not from punk. But see, their idea of punk is, is kind of different than my... My, my idea of punk is totally about experimental stuff. You know, that's why I think it, it was happening before, like you, you said at the beginning of this talk, with Stooges, with Captain Beefheart. They didn't have a name for it yet. Yeah. And so I was looking for those kind of people, uh, especially uh, the, the guy who plays drum on that song, Heartbeat, Richie West, you know, he was playing with, uh, he was playing with avant-garde people. There was a lot of avant-garde people. You know, Pettibone plays me John Coltrane. I thought he was a, I knew he was older, but I thought he was a punk rocker too. I really couldn't t separate avant-garde from the movement in those days. Maybe that's my uh, problem. That's a fault of me, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell the difference. All that crazy shit coming out of the music was like all the crazy shit. When I heard a uh, hat hoot or Deutsche gramophone record, you know, some guy sounds like he's squeaking on a fucking balloon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that was just like, you know, Zev with pieces of steel flying around. He's almost getting killed by this shit. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah. or uh, No Mercy, right? You know, uh, just a singer lady and a drummer lady. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, yeah, there was no, there was no recipe. There was no formula for the movement. It was whatever you had enough nerve to try to get away with on stage. <laughs> and I like that. I like the unpredictability. I like the way of not knowing, no recipe, no formula. Uh, and so I tried, you know, how do you do this? They're trying to fucking sell kids something called alternative with some watered down one dimensional thing. And if you really want to show them the thing you're from and teach by example, then what are you going to do? And the only way I could see is not 17 versions of the same tune. I had to bring all my experiences to it, and and she helped out. Uh, what an incredible record. It stands up so much. And I guess I could keep you, as I say, forever. Would you come back at some point and do a part two with me? Because, Watt, this has been a dream come true. Damon, you only do good spiels. When the dude asking you good stuff. 
<laughs> well, that is high praise from Caesar, my friend. I appreciate that very much. Um, Anytime you want me on again, it'd be my honor. You just tell me. I got a tour coming in March 19th, so maybe when I get back. I'll be amazing. And before I let you go, because I've asked, I'm just so fascinated by this one thing, and I think you'd be someone with a very unique perspective on this, because I've heard both sides of it. There's like, it's kind of become like a historical thing about West Coast first wave of the movement where like you had the punk stuff that's happening in Hollywood and yeah. then the beach stuff come up, which is the more kind of like what would become more codified as the hardcore scene and this yeah. clash that happened. And, you know, a lot of people like John Doe, certainly in movies kind of talks about this being a really negative thing, but the guys from youth brigade were on the show and were saying like, yeah, but it was also in addition to all the bad stuff that was happening, like this is when hardcore really became a movement. Like this is when it became about traveling the world and spreading this thing to other kids. Like, so I'm just, I think youth brigade guys were Canadians. They were, they're from Toronto before they got into punk. (laughs) What you say is good stuff. You know, John Doe wrote a book, right? Yeah. And he knew he couldn't write about the whole scene. So he asked people to do chapters. He asked me and he said, what I want mention the knuckleheads. Okay. But he also had Jack do one. And so gl- glad that Jack and Jack, you know, basically Jack's chapter is don't blame us. We believed you guys. <laughs> Look, okay, there was some knucklehead shit that came out of that, right? Yeah. But man, if it wasn't for the Hollywood people, we need, you know, they taught us. But the Hollywood scene burned out. How was it going to get to the rest of the country? So both both scenes needed need each other, and then there was cross pollinations. There was some Hollywood people who came to the church. You know, are you aware of the church? Oh, absolutely. The church was this place, Hermosa Beach, right? Mm-hmm. The Black Flag practice, and there was some cross pollinators. Remember, the Last is an early band, and they're from there. You know, there was some beach bands that was actually in the '70s punk. But we're all learned. They're, they're the only ones doing it. So all of us from the early days, we learned from the Hollywood scene. So we're very indebted to them. But to like totally knock the hardcore guy, actually hardcore came from Ian Mackay, uh, right? It's in uh, Discord Records. You use DC, Washington, DC, hardcore. Yeah, that's where, that's where, yeah because before that, hard, hardcore used to be pornography. It meant it meant triple yeah. uh, X movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ian Mackay makes it part. It's good you ask about this shit. Like like mosh. No one said that word. People said slamming. If you want to get into the sem- semantics, yeah. But but you know what? We, we needed those kids from the suburbs because they're the only ones who kept the movement going. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, people getting beat up was not happening. Chased away all the girls. That wasn't happening. But there was other things that were very happening. They kept the fire going because the Hollywood people burned out. You know, like most human things, it's not so black and white. It's all mushy and gray and blurry. (laughs) You know, I mean, you know, Little Richard song for the bedroom, Pat Boone song for the living room. (laughs) But version of the same song, right? Yeah. Tutti Frutti, uh, which is Italiano, right? Everybody's fruits. Everyone's fruits. (laughs) It's all fruit. As I say, Watt, this has been top five episodes I've ever gotten to do of this thing. This has been a dream come true. And and thank you for just doing what you do, man. Well, very grateful. Very grateful for having me aboard. And I'm ready for a round two. 
Thank you, Watt, for coming on the show. When you heard right there, Mike Watt's going to be back for a part two. Why? Because uh, there's a lot more to get to. And I didn't have to twist his arm. You hear that? He wanted to come back for a part two. And how sick is that that Rhonda Rindone, who played on Ball Hogger Tugboat, was my child, my middle child, Dorian's teacher. And she was an incredible teacher. She is an incredible teacher. Uh, he's no longer in her class, but she is one of the best teachers I've ever gotten to um, experience as a parent. Yeah, probably even if I was in her class, it'd be one of the best teachers I ever had. Uh, she's super cool and had no idea that she played on this record till my homie, uh, fellow rad dad, Matt Collins, shout out to Wild and Huck and Matt. Um, but Matt came to me one day and he's like, you're never going to believe this. But Rhonda played on Ballhog. So all the detective work on this one goes to him because he's right. It was it was so cool. Um, and hopefully she'll come on the show one day and talk about that experience. That's my goal. If I can convince her one day to come on this show and, and talk about recording that record, it'll be it'll be a, a perfect podcast. A perfect podcast. Well, this was pretty damn perfect too. Speaking of perfect. This Friday, we've got a perfect storm brewing for you. My friend Melanie Kay came to me, and former guest of the show as well, Melanie Kay, and said, I've got uh, two artists that are going on tour together. Can we can we do something with them on the same day? Put out two episodes. I'm going to put out two separate episodes on Friday. One with Lisa Kikola of the unbelievable, the godly Bell Ray. She was also an MC5. And if you have not heard her version of I Gotta Write, you are missing out. Like one of the, one of the greatest vocalists ever, ever. And also a legendary musician from Denver, Colorado. Slim Cessna of the Slim Cessna Auto Club. Also of, you know, a plethora of, of Denver bands. And I don't think, I don't think I've had anyone from Denver on. So I'm hoping we can talk about one of my favorite music scenes ever, but that is next week on the show. Uh, thank you everyone. Or th this week on the show, later this week on the show. Oh my God. Whew, burning the candle at all ends right now, everyone. But that's what we do here. I'm going to try and just, uh, you know, since we're, since we're all going to be spending, uh, you know, a little more time, uh, just sitting around listening to stuff. I figure I'm just going to overload you with podcasts. Let's just keep them coming. Keep them coming. All right, everyone. That's it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you have not checked out my quad stuff before, you, you should you should do it. You know, there's a lot. And it's, it's really worth your time. Uh, but thank you, Mike, so much for coming on the show. And that's it. Thank you, Tristan. Um, uh it's weird. I like I, I I should have talked about this off the top, but um, I lost my dog Rudy. Um, some of you are familiar with Rudy because you'd hear him sometimes in the background making noise of the episodes. Um, he was with us for for God, fourteen years almost, fifteen years almost, and uh, I miss him a lot. I really do miss him. So this whole episode is dedicated to Rudy. Uh, love you, buddy. Um, you might even heard him in the background of this episode. This will be the last episode that that's going to happen, sadly. But, um, yeah, I miss you, buddy. Anyway, uh, hug your pets. Go out there and make your own culture. Uh, sign your organ donor cards, and I will see you next week. Bye, everyone. Love you.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.